Welcome back to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, hosted by yours truly, Dr. Colby Taylor. And it's been a hell of a week, or really two weeks here in Memphis. So we had snowmageddon over the past two weeks, and it was actually an ice storm and then two snowstorms. And we're not used to winter weather in the South at all, so it pretty much shut everything down. And then because we had temperatures below zero, which is crazy for Memphis, we had a ton of water mains and pipes burst. Luckily, no pipes burst at the Taylor household, but there were enough water mains that burst around the city that water pressure went way down, and we were under a boil water alert for a week. So last night, the boil water alert finally lifted, but we're still being asked to conserve water. Um, With the water thing, there are a lot of disheveled, probably stinky people walking around Memphis since we've been asked to limit showers and bathing and stuff. And it's interesting, you might not know this, but psychologists often look at hygiene during a clinical visit. Hygiene and appearance can be really important, right? It might indicate that you have depression or a psychotic disorder or autism spectrum disorder. Hygiene can be an important indicator of mental health. And we can code this into our observations, like with a mini mental status evaluation. And I've always felt a little weird commenting on the appearance of clients, Like one of the standard lines we might write if someone has a non-remarkable appearance is, quote, presented as well-groomed. I know it's important, but it just seems a little weird to me. Um, Anyways, that's not the focus of today's episode. Uh, Because of the winter weather and because I realize we usually talk about some heavy stuff, some heavy topics on this podcast, I thought we'd do something a little more lighthearted and fun. So today's topic is going to be on imaginary friends in childhood. Um, Sometimes I'll talk to a parent of like a four or five-year-old and they'll say they're concerned that their child has an imaginary friend. And isn't that like technically a visual and maybe auditory hallucination? Um, I try to alleviate the parent's fears by explaining to them that imaginary friends are a normal and really healthy part of early childhood. My parents say I had two imaginary friends when I was three years old or so. Um, I named them Bibi and Mooney. And I guess I had them for several months. Um, I didn't have any brothers and sisters growing up. So I wonder if there's been any research on whether only children are more likely to have imaginary friends and their peers because, you know, they need companionship and all. And this seems like it'd be a really interesting thing to research. Um, I found one study from 2012 by Brinthop and Dove uh, that said that only children were more likely to engage in self-talk. So self-talk is talking to themselves out loud audibly um, than were children with siblings. And then the study found that children who engage in self-talk are more likely to have imaginary friends. So it makes sense that children without siblings would be more likely to have imaginary friends than children with siblings. Um, I also found some research by Gleason in 2000 that indicates firstborn and only children are probably more likely to have imaginary friends. Uh, Maybe I could do an episode on only children in the future. Having no siblings does have important implications for development and also for psychopathology. Uh, what I studied in France as an undergrad, uh, they would call me un fils unique, which I guess is the translation for only child. Uh, anyways, I digress as usual. Uh, so having an imaginary friend or imaginary friends in childhood is completely normal. In the child psych literature, imaginary friends are usually called imaginary companions, and they're usually denoted by the abbreviation IC. And most kids have imaginary companions as preschoolers. I saw one research study where 65% of preschoolers had an imaginary companion. That study was conducted by Taylor and colleagues 
but not by me. Uh, I don't think there's any relation there. Uh, anyways, imaginary companions can be human in form. Um, I'm pretty sure my imaginary friends, BB and uh, Mooney, were, were human. I can't remember that far back, but I think they were human. Uh, they can also be animal in form, or they can even be spirit form, uh, although I'm not entirely sure how that works. And what's cool is that the characteristics of imaginary companions seem to remain relatively consistent over time. Like when children were interviewed at one time point, they would describe their imaginary friend maybe as male and with brown hair. And then they'd be interviewed by psychologists months later, and their description of the imaginary companion would be pretty consistent. And that example involved physical characteristics, right? Being male and with brown hair. Imaginary companions can also have personalities, and these personalities seem to remain pretty stable over time too. Imaginary companions also don't have to be entirely imaginary. They can sort of be put onto physical objects, like onto teddy bears and stuffed animals and dolls or what have you. Sometimes these are termed transitional objects or personified objects. And this sort of reminds me of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, right? Calvin is supposed to be like a six-year-old boy, and he has a stuffed tiger that's named Hobbes, and Hobbes is sort of a personified stuffed animal. Anyways, so in going through the literature, Gleason and Taylor seem to be the big names in the imaginary companion research world. Some of their research indicates that girls are slightly more likely than boys to have imaginary friends. Kids that have imaginary friends also may score higher on measures of socialization than those without imaginary friends. And this brings up important adaptive purpose of imaginary friends, right? They help kids to practice their socialization and language, to flex their social and language skills. They might also serve an emotional purpose. They give relational support to the child so the child doesn't feel alone. Um, imaginary friends can take on important roles in the family, too. I've had some parents who save a seat at the table or even make a plate of food for a child's imaginary friend. Now, these are good imaginary friends, which seem to be way more common than documented cases of imaginary enemies. All right, anyways, imaginary enemies sounds fascinating, but I haven't found that much research out there. Anyway, so I've had parents present with a few different cases of imaginary companions that have concerned them. Um, I've had a parent whose child had an imaginary companion and the imaginary companion happened to have the same name and the same physical description as the parent's dead father, so the child's grandfather. And that child never met their grandfather. So kind of creepy, right? Um, I guess there are two possible explanations there. Uh, one is that there might be some sort of suggestibility at work. Uh, the child's parents had pictures of the grandpa around the house, and the child's parents would point to the pictures of the grandpa and tell the child the grandpa's name and a little bit about his personality. So it's likely the child just latched onto that. Um, imaginary companions can be fictional, but they can also be based on real people. Um, I guess the second explanation is that it really was the child's grandfather and that children are just more susceptible to the spirit world. Um, you'll hear this explanation in certain cultural and religious contexts. All right. Parents also become concerned when imaginary friends persist after early childhood. So in this episode, we've just been talking about early childhood. Most of the literature focuses on preschool years, but sometimes the literature stretches out to the age of seven. So one question I get is, when should imaginary friends disappear? And I saw a few studies that fourth and fifth graders had imaginary friends. Um, I guess depending on cultural context, this can be normal. 
Um, I don't really see any reason to be concerned if imaginary friends persist into middle childhood, so into like fourth and fifth grade. Um, if they persisted into the teenage years or into early adulthood or something like that, I guess that would start to become concerning. Um, anyways, what happens to imaginary friends? Um, I think usually they just go away. They sort of fade away. And sometimes they might be replaced by real companions, um, especially when children enter school, uh, they might start to have uh, real friends among their classmates. Um, but there is a study by Kastenbaum and Fox that found some kids say their imaginary companions die. Um, sometimes these deaths are even described in graphic detail, like they can be violent. And I guess in these cases, this could prompt further probing by a psychologist, like has this child experienced a recent death in the family? Or have they been exposed to a violent movie or violent media that they might need to process? Um, so take home message, imaginary friends are not a cause to worry and they can actually be helpful in development. Uh, that they might be a sign of some sort of emotional disturbance hasn't been shown in research. Are imaginary companions technically hallucinations? Um, I guess they might meet DSM-5 uh, definitions of hallucinations. Uh, the DSM-5 says, I'm reading from it right now, uh, quote, hallucinations are perception-like experiences that occur without external stimulus. They are vivid and clear with the full force and impact of normal perceptions and not under voluntary control. Right, that's the end of the quote. So with that last part, though, imaginary companion, companions might actually be under voluntary control. Um, so they might technically be hallucinations, I guess. They might technically not be hallucinations, but who really cares because they're not a cause for concern. Anyways, let's check the mailbag. Um, I've got an email saying, uh, please make more episodes about autism. And don't ask people if we want to know anything about specific things. Just make a podcast about it because I want to know everything. Thank you for your podcast. You are amazing. And by the way, your Theory of Personality podcast on Spotify starts at episode eight. Why is that? All right. Thank you for the email. Uh, I promise to make more episodes on autism. So the reason my personality podcast has only a few episodes available right now is that I didn't renew the hosting fee for it. Um, it's sort of expensive paying a monthly hosting fee to keep episodes online. And I'm not making any money from this. I have no sponsors or anything like that. So I'm paying out of pocket for hosting and for my microphone and everything. And now that I think about it, it's really sort of illogical to have this podcast. Um, but anyways, because of the expense, I decided to focus on the Abnormal Psychologist podcast instead of on the Personality podcast. Um, but if you're interested in old episodes of the Personality one, I can hook you up. Uh, just send your request for old episodes or mailbag questions for this podcast to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. Anyways, that's it for now. This was a short episode. Uh, until the next episode, take care and stay safe.